You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Tomorrow marks the beginning of what's called All Hallowtide on the Western Church calendar, a three-day period uh, called a triduum. I don't know if you've heard of this before. If you didn't grow up Catholic, you probably haven't. I never did. Uh, it's called a triduum means it means a religious observance lasting three days. We're probably all familiar with the triduum of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday, right? But most of us have probably never heard of the triduum of uh, All Hallows Eve, aka Halloween, then All Saints Day, then All Souls Day, just in that in that order. So contrary to what many evangelicals believe. Halloween is really not a secular holiday, at least not at least not originally. Hallow means holy or a saint, right? We Lord's Prayer begins, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? Hallow means holy or saint. Halloween means all hallows eve. The eve uh, before the day, we remember and revere, commemorate the faithful departed. The saints, the holy ones who have gone on before. Um, that's what I understand. Now, again, if you didn't grow up Catholic like, like I didn't, you may have never heard any of this before. But praying to saints, honoring the faithful departed, honoring the dead is a very old Christian tradition dating back, gosh, I don't know, more than a thousand years. However, like many Christian traditions and holidays, it was syncretized with some pagan traditions, namely Celtic traditions. Uh, these were the tribes that inhabited the British Isles, well, now the British Isles, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, um, centuries ago, medieval Britain, I guess we would say. And these tribes had harvest festivals around this time of year uh, that included you know, making things like jack-o'-lanterns, bonfires. They they believed, in fact, that this time of year was a particularly unique time of year when the boundary or the veil between this world and the spirit world was particularly thin. And so ghosts and spirits could freely move from this world into the next or vice versa. And so manifestations of ghosts and spirits were particularly common at this time of year, thus the reason why Halloween has these kinds of, All Hallows Eve carries these kinds of ideas and traditions as well. In Mexico, this triduum, the next three days, is taken really seriously. Uh, it's taken to a whole nother level in what's called, of course, Dia de los Muertos, meaning Day of the Dead. Dia de los Muertos is a distinctly Mexican holiday. A lot of people don't know that. Um, and it needs to be honored and revered as such. It's a lot of cultural appropriation that happens with Dia de los Muertos, we've, uh, we find. We find. Uh, but it's a distinctly Mexican holiday that, of course, is influenced by Christianity, particularly Roman Catholicism, uh, but also other Aztec ancient Aztec rituals and ideas, right? Uh, if you've seen the movie Coco, uh, you probably are familiar with some of these things like the building of ofrendas 
you know, the making of altars where you put pictures of deceased loved ones. There's candles, there's sugar skulls, there's marigolds, there's uh, maybe their favorite possessions are there. You go to their gravesite and you decorate it with their favorite possessions or gifts, right? This is all part of Dia de los Muertos. You also may maybe, um, you know, put makeup on that makes you look dead as well, right? Like a skeleton. And of course, for a lot of Christians, especially in America, that's seen as like offensive, right? But again, it's all a way of honoring the dead and a way of perhaps embracing death, making peace with death, recognizing that death is a part of life. Or perhaps better put, life is a part of death. You think about the long history of the universe, the billions of years that came before, the billions of years that'll come after us. Our life is but a short blip on a cosmic scale. And maybe it's better to say that that life is a part of death and non-existence more than death is a part of. But anyway, all of this is a part of, you know, this these next three days, thinking about this, uh, ruminating on on death and maybe embracing it, making peace with it a little bit, but also remembering and revering those who came before. Remembering them, celebrating their legacy, um, thinking about their values, their traditions, and allowing that to, to inform our lives, perhaps. So as we contemplate today the meaning of these three holy days to come, Let's focus on the themes of remembrance and honoring those who have gone before. Let's consider the, their legacy, what their lives meant to us and others, and how we can best honor their memory. By doing so, by doing so, they live on in us. This is the deeper meaning of these next three days. The message is, what is remembered lives. I love that phrase. What is remembered lives. And who is remembered lives. Which is really a way of saying, of course, that, they're, they're, that the deceased live on in us. Not just their memory. But really, in a way, they live on in us as we cherish their memory. Their spirit is kept alive as we remember them. Their legacy is kept alive as we embody their values and their way of life. What is remembered lives, and who is remembered lives. This, too, is an understanding of the resurrection. The question, of course, becomes, who do we remember? What do we remember about them? And before I get into who I choose to remember and why, and how their memory influences me, and I'd love to hear in a few minutes who you remember, how you remember them, and why you remember them. Uh, before we do all that, I think it's helpful to talk first about why it's so important that we have a sense of connection to those in the past and feel connected, not just to them, but feel connected to what they stood for. Because those connections, I think, give us a sense of being grounded in the world and part of something much bigger than ourselves. Those connections, I think, are meaningful and give our lives meaning. I think one of the biggest challenges we're facing today as a, as a culture, and particularly a church like this one, not just as a culture, but particularly this church, 
of you know post-evangelical post post-evangelical deconstructed millennial Gen X Christians who wonder what relationship they have anymore to their faith, right? To the faith of their upbringing. I think this is particularly important, this talk. There's a growing sense of alienation and isolation that we experience today. There's a sense of disconnection from others and from the past and from the systems of meaning that used to ground us. Used to, used to ground us and give us a sense of shared identity, a sense of shared meaning. And this disconnection is in large part brought on by what is called post-modernity or post-structuralism. And I'm a big fan of post-modernity and post-structuralism. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it's not a bad thing. People who say, I don't like post-modernity, I, I think sound like somebody who says, uh, I disagree with the year 1996. <laughs> it's kind of a nonsensical thing to say. It's, it's neither good nor bad. It's just what is. Uh, Post-modernity, post-structuralism is actually really helpful in the way that it functions as a corrective to the modernist assumptions from the 18th and 19th century. These ideas that the political, religious, and social structures that make up our world are immutable, unchangeable, and unchallengeable. These authorities, these structures need to be held up and revered simply because they're authorities and structures. Post-structuralism shows how these these structures, these institutions, these ideologies and stories are not objective and timeless and universal, but, cont but contingent cultural artifacts that are human constructs, meaning they are relative to the unique historical context from which they emerge. They are thereby limited in scope by the language and the worldview of the communities they come out of. They are reality seen through the lens, the subjective lens of a particular people at a particular place and time. These are our religions, our political systems, our social and cultural institutions. But that's really deconstructive to understand that, to know that, right? <laughs> to understand post-structuralism, post-modernity, to operate in it, it's inherently deconstructive. It leaves us with this sense of being adrift in a sea of pure subjectivity and relativity where there is no objective and universal truth. There is only your truth and my truth and my truth might not be your truth. One's truth doesn't trump another. This, in turn, can leave us feeling like there's no ground beneath our feet. And like we're adrift in, in a sea of meaninglessness, it can leave us feeling like we have no shared identity or shared collective meaning. But this is really an overreaction, I think, this sense of meaninglessness. And a case of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Because there is meaning still. There is truth. Yes, it's a meaning and a truth that we create, but it's meaning nonetheless. Who told us, think about it, who told us that meaning must be timeless and universal to be meaningful? That our religions must be timeless and universal 
in order to be meaningful. Who told us that? That our sacred texts must be perfect, objective, scientific renderings of actual history in order to be meaningful. Who told us that? Well, modernity did, the 18th and 19th century. And the church as a knee-jerk reaction against the scientific worldview and, it, and the sense that it's encroaching upon our biblical worldview. It's an overreaction. Who told us that meaning is only meaningful if it's given to us by a God or some immutable, absolute, transcendent source on high? Why can't the communal meaning we create be all the meaning we need? Why can't the stories and the traditions we create in community, like this one, be all the meaning we need? Why can't our relationships, our loving relationships, our, why can't that be all the meaning we need? I think the need some have today to assert a kind of absolute, universal, timeless meaning that everyone needs to convert to and recognize and adopt is really just a thinly veiled power grab. A power grab born out of fear, namely the fear of death and powerlessness. So yes, the systems of meaning we create, like our religious traditions and our beliefs, are ultimately human constructs that hopefully correlate to some reality. But that doesn't make them meaningless or worthless, rather quite the opposite. They're rich and they're full of meaning. And I think the next three days, these next three days of All Hallowtide, this tritium can help us remember that. It can help us remember that we have a history. We are connected to the past and those who came before. And I hope that's one of the big things we foster here as a church, as a spiritual community, a sense of deep connection to the past, particularly the Christian past. Oh gosh, did you hear that? Yeah. I don't know what that was. Um, I hope that's one of the big things we foster here as a spiritual community, a sense of deep connection to the past, particularly the Christian past, and to our spiritual forebears. I think such connections are life-giving. They're life-giving and enriching. I think without them, we lose so much. There is something uniquely powerful about shared traditions, shared values, shared stories, and feeling a sense of shared connection to those who came before. These things not only give our lives meaning, but they become the glue that holds us together and in relationship to each other. I think that's a big reason why spiritual community is still so important. We gather here every Sunday as a shared tradition to read these scriptures, to partake in this rite, this ritual, this sacred sacrament, the Lord's Supper. And we dialogue with each other about it all. We dialogue about what matters most in life, and we do it as a way of finding collective meaning. We do it as a way of grounding ourselves in this crazy world we live in at a time when maybe that's more important than ever before. 
And so in keeping with All Hollow Tide, I want to focus today on remembering certain people. Let's remember certain people today that are important to us, that have been influential on us, and that we feel a certain connection to, maybe. And it doesn't have to be a family member, to be clear. It can be anybody. For me, it's people like Rachel Held Evans, who died, gosh, at the age of 37, just three and a half years ago. She spoke here once. Her life, her, her work, her writings have been so influential uh, on my life and work, on my faith. And I know to a lot of you in this room as well. She was a post-evangelical millennial, like so many of us. And her legacy was not just about challenging gender roles in the church, but about having an intellectually honest faith that takes science seriously and other points of view seriously. She was also really influential on matters of racial justice and economic justice and was one of the early adopters or trailblazers, we would say, on the issue of LGBTQ inclusion in the church. It was a conference that I attended back almost 10 years ago that she spoke at that moved me from the place of being what we say side B, kind of half-baked on the issue of LGBTQ inclusion to being fully affirming. It was her. The next Sunday I came here out of that conference and preached a sermon where I came out, so to speak, uh, as affirming, as a straight pastor. She was that influential on me and thereby on this church. Today, I remember her. This, these next three days, All Saints Day, I remember her. But I also feel a sense of spiritual connection to people like James Baldwin and James Cone, whose ability to frame racial issues as spiritual issues was so unique and so powerful. Their writings stay with me. Both Baldwin and Cone were intellectual and spiritual giants. And even though James Baldwin wasn't a Christian per se, like Cone was, his writings were deeply spiritual and philosophical and even theological, in my opinion. But I would be remiss today if I didn't mention Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King Jr., although he too deserves a mention, as always. But Martin Luther, that great 16th century German reformer that so many of us owe more than we realize. And today just happens to be Reformation Sunday. The last Sunday in October is always Reformation Sunday because it correlates with the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95-point critique to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, October 31st, 1517. 505 years ago tomorrow, but the last Sunday in October is always Reformation Sunday. And we are the heirs. We are the heirs of so many of his ideas and certainly his critique of the church and his deconstruction of medieval Christianity. A Luther scholar and a friend of mine, Josh DeKaiser, fellow Dutchman, puts it this way. Luther's deconstruction given the religious imagination of his time, was no less thorough than what we mean by deconstruction today. Indeed, when Luther's ideas got traction, not only did they form a huge threat to the religious establishment, rather, 
The entire conglomerate of state and church was ruptured. The power of the German emperor diminished, and the Roman Catholic Church no longer ruled over Europe, end quote. This is really the size and the scope of what Luther and other reformers accomplished. It's hard to do it justice in a brief talk like this one, but it's important to understand that Luther was not just debating some tedious and abstract theological points that only a handful of clergy cared about. He was actually calling into question the very foundation of reality as the medieval church understood it. And this is why many credit the Reformation as being the birth of the modern world. Once the foundation of the medieval church was destabilized by Luther's, by Luther and others, a power vacuum formed in Europe that was filled by new understandings of reality and the cosmos. Enter scientists like Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Newton, and others. This too is part of the, the legacy of the Reformation and the legacy of the church, the birth of the scientific age. I don't think a lot of people know that. Luther basically argued that the cross, the crucifixion of Christ, symbolized that God is other than anything human cognition could come up with. All claims to ultimate knowledge and power are therefore destabilized by the cross. The cross is not a symbol of power, but powerlessness. It's not a symbol of victory, but defeat. It's not a symbol of wealth, but poverty. It's not a symbol of logic and reason, but it's a symbol of absurdity. It's not a symbol of direct knowledge about God, but of God's utter incomprehensibility. Therefore, you cannot build an empire on the cross, Luther argued against the medieval church. You cannot build an empire, a system of power on the cross. It doesn't work. By making these arguments, Luther was saying that the medieval church's theology was just a thinly veiled power grab. He was saying the church was a charlatan. The church was drunk on power, drunk on greed. It was a fraud. This is how Luther confronted and deconstructed the power of the church of his day. And we are the heirs of his deconstruction, of his ideas of his understanding of the cross, what he called his Theologia Crucis, Latin for theology of the cross, which he wielded like a hammer against the medieval church, and which we kind of wield as a hammer today against the evangelical church. We are the heirs of him, his ideas. And knowing this, knowing our history, knowing and remembering whose shoulders we are standing on today, the medieval mystics, Meister Eckhart, Marguerite Perret. The list goes on. Knowing whose shoulders we stand on today is so important because it gives us a sense of being part of something so much larger than ourselves. A much larger, meaningful tradition that traces its roots back to the early church. It shows us that we are connected to others. We are connected to a rich and meaningful tradition and past. 
which is to say that we are part of a meaningful present. This is meaningful because that was meaningful. I think this knowledge is inherently enriching and life-giving and grounding, which is something we need today, perhaps more than ever before. This is what the Triduum of All Hollow Tide is about. And as Christians, we are, of course, most connected to the memory of Jesus of Nazareth. We, I would be remiss today if, you know, we're talking about remembering the saints and the faithful departed. We didn't mention Jesus, right? I mean, that's what this whole sacred tradition of the Lord's Supper is about. Jesus himself instituted it by saying what? Do this in remembrance of me. I can't think of a better way to kick off all hollow tide than by remembering the saint, the holy one, we should remember most of all, Jesus. And we do so with this tradition, as we do here every Sunday. I think traditions like this connect us to a rich and meaningful past and to those who came before. This tradition grounds us, gives us a sense of shared and collective meaning. And what could be greater than that? So let us partake today with that in mind. Let us meditate on that. And as always here at Central, um, well, we just restarted this. We used to do it before the pandemic. And last week we began doing it this way again. Just take one of these gluten-free crackers, dip it in the cup, receive it, and then serve the, the person next to you. This is alcohol-free. This is gluten-free. This table is free and open to all who wish to partake. Be blessed now in this as Max and Emily lead us in song. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. I have so many confusing thoughts about what you were talking about, and I, I don't want to, I don't know where to start, but we'll just start. It's cool. For the next 30 minutes, I will now outline all of the confusions I have. Um, so one of them is when, obviously I'm pretty well deconstructed. Um, when we try to create our own meaning, and I don't know if this is just because I'm old and tired or meds I'm on or drugs I'm not on or what, but like creating our own meaning feels without a body of history or whatever, it feels uh, thin, tinny, right? Like not very important. And having like a cultural uh, bedrock or a race or a Christian or whatever tradition, a foundation feels really good. But the confusing thing is like, 
I've rejected a lot of that, right? Now it feels like to do that kind of culture, that kind of church feels like appropriation or it feels like I'm putting on a skin. It's not, it's not the real thing anymore, right? And so I'm, I'm confused in my head, like, am I just broken? Like, is it impossible now to, let me put it in a different way. Like, does it feel good to belong to a culture or a race or a religion because I'm screwed up and my upbringing and my history has made that what I lust after or what you know my comfort food or whatever when it's and it's actually not great to do that um or is it that I'm just incapable of feeling a depth of meaning anymore um so that's yeah, part of yeah. what's going through my head. No, I appreciate it. Um, I think you're not the only one that has those questions here. Uh, I, I would say, you know, my first thought was in reaction, I don't think there's anything um, that's broken or uh, wrong, I should say, that, that makes us want to feel connected to the past or part of some kind of tradition, some kind of uh, so, yeah, so, some kind of culture or tradition that's meaningful. There's nothing, there's something inherently human and I think wonderful about that. So, you know, whether you're doing that out of a sense of, you know, out of being broken or not, is kind of irrelevant to me. I think it's human. We're, you know, I, you're, you have a family, right? You guys have traditions as a family. You do things together as a family. There's structure in your life together. Yes. I, you celebrate birthdays, you celebrate holidays, right? You have things you do with your kids, you play with your kids. You know, there's traditions. Where would we be with our own families? We didn't have those kinds of things. Is that, is that? Yeah, but it's like one layer deep, right? Okay. And maybe people who are making meaning or creators in general don't feel like the stuff that they're creating is impactful and that we need the next generation to look back on it and say, oh, that change the world or change my life or whatever you know like when we and i've changed my life a lot yeah but it doesn't feel big or transformative or whatever like, okay. i don't have that sort of emotional or connection to that stuff i mean i obviously i love my kids we have our own you know family traditions our ways of doing things and yeah. that they're gonna treat that like they're normal right yeah and that's great. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It. it I'm just. I'm it doesn't feel I'm, like quite the same as. Um. You know, a thousand years of we've been doing the same thing, and um, there are angels and demons in the world that cause fear or or uh, pain or joy or it's none of that. Like, and maybe it's a fantasy. That sort of like stuff you get in books you know i don't know how to explain it <laughs> okay well yeah i does anybody want to respond to jason anybody have a what if you always want to offer it to other people as well you know i reminded yeah jen i think i understand where you're going with this 
And I think, at least in my perspective, um, when you break from a tradition that you were raised in, when you deconstruct your faith, you have to put in place new traditions, make up new, like that's something Ashley talks about all the time. Like, I want to do these new traditions when we have a family and because we have broken away in a lot of ways from our family and from how we were raised. So we have to put in place new traditions. Um, and I think that that can feel sad and painful, um, but I don't think it negates the value of that, you know, and, you know, yeah. I don't know if that's helpful. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I think the reason why people, even in a progressive, liberal, post-evangelical, deconstructed church like this one, still attend church, is for community. Is for community, but also because they still feel, even, even if it's just because this is the way they were raised, <laughs> they still feel like the traditions and the the theology or the structure of the church the spiritual community itself is in, is is meaningful and enriching for them even if they can't put their finger on exactly why and perhaps it's because you can't put their finger on exactly why may you know think about our jewish brothers and sisters especially uh, reformed jews who by and large many of them are atheists openly acknowledging that but they're still practicing jews why why do they still practice the tradition? Why do they still go to temple? Why do they still read the Torah? Why do they still have bar mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs? Why? Because of the community, because of the traditions, it inherently is, it inscribes their lives with meaning. They find that connection to their heritage, to their forebears, meaningful and spiritual, perhaps, if I, you know, they may even say. As I think many of us say, they, we say, well, I don't really know what I believe about God anymore. I haven't closed the door completely on that. I'm not a pure materialist, we would say, a lot of us. And perhaps the mystery itself of the divine, the sacred, the transcendent, whatever you want to call it, perhaps that itself is harbored in these traditions, that mystery. And, and by participating in something like this. We're not just finding community, but we're finding a sense of connection to that mystery, that transcendence, that awe. Um, you know, people say today, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Common thing to say. I've said it. We're called the SBNRs, the spiritual, but not religious. We've become an acronym because <laughs> we're common, right? Uh, but the, the joke is, uh, you know, um, people say spiritual, but not religious. And once you talk to them, you often find out they're not really spiritual either because they don't do anything, right? There's no, there's no spiritual practice, but yet they feel spiritual. I'm not, let's not, I'm not tr trying to make fun of us, maybe a little, <laughs> but, you know, having some spiritual practice, and if it's nothing more than, you know, this right now, this can be enriching. I think it still is for people. And I'm not, and I know I have a vested interest in making this case, obviously, you know, everybody knows I get a paycheck, right? But I think you also know that it's true. I mean, we just had a consultant come and meet with us last week downstairs with the board, Jen sits on the board, um, you know, and he went through all these data points coming from Barna and all the different polling groups, right? All these different data points 
that have studied what's going on religiously in America today. The bottom line, the facts, the fact is people still hunger for community and, and spiritual tradition and a sense of connection to the mystery. They still want that. They just don't know how to go about getting a lot of it. And we're providing that here. You know, the consultant says, you guys have an incredible product. The problem isn't your product, so to speak. And that's putting it in capitalistic terms, marketing terms, right? It's like you guys are doing something absolutely incredible that is valuable to so many people today coming out of the funk that is conservative Christianity, right? Your problem is you're invisible. He's helping us with our online CEO stuff, right? I mean, uh, SEO, sorry, search engine optimization. I, I say all that to say that I'm convinced, and again, I have a vested interest in saying this, obviously, um, but I'm, I'm convinced that this, this stuff is still meaningful for us. For, for, and that's why a lot of you are still here. Jason, you know, um, I completely understand where you're coming from. And I, you know, I'm not here to like, obviously convince you of anything or provide answers. Because I think a lot of times I often wonder like, why are we still doing this? But then when I think about it, you know, I, I love the sacrament. I love gathering with you. I love these scriptures. And I'm convinced that even if I wasn't a pastor, I would still find meaning in attending a church like this, you know? But anyway, that's, I don't know. Anybody want to react to that, respond to that? Thoughts about that? Why are you here? What, what's meaningful for you about this? What keeps you connected? I'm curious. We've talked about this. Hello? Story. Yeah. Go ahead. Who's, did I hear somebody? Oh, hello. I'm, I'm Andre. Sorry, I'm just connected to via Zoom. Joining us. Uh, I, Go ahead. Yeah, I I think to me a big part of why I'm, I feel part of this community and I feel tethered to it uh, is that um, I it's being surrounded by people that I consider like-minded or at least that tend to uh, go on their own journeys of try to discovering the divine in our own ways as. Part of, as you mentioned, part of the deconstructed message is assuming that there is no absolute truth that we have a hold on for now. And I think to me, there is value into seeing the journeys that people take, which I think you would not take if you were to be more on the traditional, pure, you know, more conservative, religious, Christian side that I think does put you in a structure that has been there for millennia. So. To me, there is value in uh, hearing uh, every Sunday what the journeys that we're all going on and pondering them and integrating into my own, my own and finding my own definition of the divine and comfort zone in that. Thank you. Yeah, I think I understood most of that. <laughs> Thank you, Andre. Yeah, um, it's just hard to hear you in this room. That's all. But I, I hear you saying that, you know, hearing every Sunday kind of about the journey that we're all in together is deeply meaningful for you. Um, and I think that's true for a lot of us. Uh, anybody else want to share this morning? Who or what has been meaningful for you and influential on you and your journey? Maybe what people, thinkers, authors, speakers. Yeah, Emily. Um, I mean, I would like to think that this is like such a learning journey that like coming every week sort of opens up a new chapter or conversation about 
um, the past because I think as a recovering born again, um, we sort of need the community and the people who have sort of been in it as well. So you find the camaraderie of, you know, there's always those groups with similar um, things that have happened to them. But um, so, yeah, that's why I do it because I feel like constantly learning and then it keeps you going and you can make more sense of things that didn't make sense. Um, and sometimes things are just not going to make sense. And that's that's how it works. That's okay yeah, too. that's okay too. Saying I don't know and I right. can live with the unknowing. Right. Um, but I would say a person that I remember would have to be my cousin who um, battled lupus um, pretty badly diagnosed when she was 12. So she lived with a level of, of pain that I don't think most people could really do. And she did it with a smile on her face and with no complaints. So it was always a good like perspective, like, you know, I'm going through this and it, but look at her, she's, you know, um, she had a heart attack at 35 that killed her, but allegedly had had one before and didn't know it. So living with a level of pain, pain to the point where you didn't know that you had a heart attack previously was crazy. But the way that she lived, I mean, we grew up in a not great part of town. So the things that people did to her, she genuinely and completely forgave them and in such a loving way. And that always spoke to me because I was like, I'm about injustice. Like what? You, you know, that's not right. And you can't, but she just, I, I just have to say like, because she was just like Jesus in that way, where it was just so forgiving and forgiving with no conditions and forgiving with, you know, anything like, and in such a loving way. So that has really spoken to me in my life. So I remember her today. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, somebody else. I think one of the things that makes a community like this one particularly meaningful today is it's a little bit like group therapy. <laughs> and, you know, by coming here and participating, your presence here is encouraging those around you who are dealing with who are maybe at a different stage than you are, right? You might be really far down the road of deconstruction and kind of doing reconstruction or comfortable with your deconstruction, but the person sitting across the pew from you might be new to all this and scared out of their mind. You know, it's a group therapy, right? We're being supportive of each other in this crazy journey, right? Um, not just called Christianity, but deconstructing, right? And um, particularly in a we, we often talk about central as being, you know, uh, AA for recovering fundamentalists, right? You get here and you say, hi, my name's Aaron, and I'm a recovering fundamentalist. And everyone says, welcome, I'm one too. You know? <laughs> and it's sort of a 12-step program. But that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And, and, and we can, even in those waters where we collectively find meaning and healing here, um, you know, we can still find... In fact, maybe, you know, doing what Christina Cleveland is doing in her book, God is a Black Woman, right? She's taking the good stories from our Christian tradition right? and, and keeping those and just, I guess, doing something new with them, doing something beautiful with them. We're redeeming some things here, too. I think that's meaningful. I think that's beautiful and healing. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, 
that's where I'm at on it. But anybody else have something they want to share today about Helios? Yeah. I'm just thinking about the question you asked, why are we here? Mm. And I'm sure everybody could have a different reason. But then I was thinking my reason might be different from week to week, you know? And it's just so many different reasons of why. Because I asked myself Sunday morning when I when the alarm goes off, like, why am I getting up? And I really feel like going back to sleep. And I can totally if I want to. But yeah, it just varies. Like one of the reasons is, I always think about you and Max and I appreciate and Bob and appreciate what you guys do here. And I don't want you doing it for an empty church, you know? So sometimes I show up just because I like y'all. <laughs> and then Thank sometimes, you for your honesty. But, yeah. but ultimately it's like, I think it comes to what you just said about group therapy. It's like part of it is self-care. Like I don't do yoga, you know? So this is a spiritual practice and I feel better about myself and about my life when I come here every week. And then there's another deeper reason where you talked about, you know, the Day of the Dead and everything. It's like I'm honoring my ancestors because, of course, growing up, my mom made me come to church every single Sunday without question. So then looking back to, you know, historically how slaves always had a spiritual practice despite their, you know, situation. So it's kind of like I'm honoring my ancestors by coming to church every Sunday. So, yeah, it's all kinds of reasons. And. I think the bottom line is whatever your reason for being here is, it's it's okay. You know, like it's good for you, whatever works for you, you know. Yeah. And that's what so, yeah. that's thank you, Rodney. Thank you for sharing all that. That's really powerful. And you know, at the end of the day, you know, love is what makes anything meaningful. Love. The love of life and the love of others. The the affirmation of life, the affirmation of others is what makes anything meaningful. Anything that's meaningful is only meaningful. If it's an affirmation of something, if it's a love of something, love is what determines meaning. And as long as we are centered on love here, right, the love of each other, the love of others, caring for each other, learning how we can love life better, love each other better, then this will always be meaningful, right? So I just, you know, we, we talk about how, oh, you know, meaning is relative. There's no, there's no, no universal absolute truth. And in, in a way, you know what I mean by that, but in a way, I'm, that's incorrect. There is absolute truth. There is absolute meaning, and it's love. Love. And um, I think if we focus on that, we can't go wrong, right? Well, I appreciate everybody's thoughts today, and um, I want to conclude our service, as we always do, by this uh, shared benediction, this shared affirmation, which will be up on the screen that's working. Let us say this, say this together now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thank you for being here, and I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.